Opioid agonist treatment, or OAT for short, can be a life-changing treatment for opioid dependence. At the medically supervised injecting room, a service run by North Richmond Community Health, more than 400 people have successfully commenced the treatment with remarkable results. My name's Mia, and today I'm joined by a special co-host, Dr. Nico Clark, Medical Director of the EMSA. We're going to discuss OAT, how it works, and how it can change the lives of those who receive it. To guide us through this, we'll interview one of the doctors working at the OAT clinic at the EMSA, Dr. Tony Weeks, along with one of the EMSA clients, Peter, who's generously offered to share his story with us and offered for us to refer to him by his first name on the podcast. This episode will have a special focus on long-acting injectable buprenorphine, which is a bit of a mouthful to say sometimes. It's referred to as LAIB on the podcast. Peter refers to it as Bivadel, which is one of the brand names of this treatment. Before we go any further, I should mention that this episode will discuss injecting drug use in detail, which may affect some listeners. Supports available through Direct Line, the Alcohol and Drug Counselling Information and Referral Service. The phone number is 1-800-888-236. All right, let's get to it. My co-host today is Dr. Nico Clark. He's the medical director of the EMSA, and he's also an addiction medicine doctor with 25 years experience of providing opioid pharmacotherapy treatment. And I just want to acknowledge how pleased I am that you're my co-host because it's really good to have someone who's an expert in this field. Um, I often say to people, it's like a journey being a layperson who doesn't know a whole lot about the subject and I'm learning as I go along. So I'm happy that you're here to add a lot more depth to the conversation with Dr. Tony Weeks. Well, thanks, Mia. It's a pleasure to be here. I know nothing about doing podcasts. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good balance then. Uh, yeah, yeah, fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. So it's a good opportunity to introduce our guest, Dr. Tony. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's good to be here. Can you just explain your role briefly? When the long-acting injectable buprenorphine became available, Nico asked me if I'd actually start work to help develop this clinic to meet the needs of the clients. Can I take you back to that time when you came? It was soon after we'd opened, and I think you were the first person who put their hand up. What what made you want to do that? Well, I'd spent my professional life as an anaesthetist. I was director of anaesthetics at the Alfred for nearly 20 years. Um, And during that time... I had no choice but to become aware that the problem anaesthetists have handling opioids. And it had been quite well reported in the United States that a significant proportion of anaesthetists or percentage of anaesthetists um, became addicted to opioids in their professional life. And it's not clear whether they chose the profession because it gave them access to opioids or whether the access to opioids as part of their work made them at risk of becoming addicted. The tragic case at the Alfred of one of our trainees uh, who became addicted to pethidine, uh, he was treating bipolar disorder. Um, and I'm not giving away any secrets. This was all public information having been to the coroner. But he flattened out his manic phases and dealt with the pain of life by taking pethidine. Um, and he had some time off work and came back to work, but tragically took his own life after he relapsed to using pethidine. That led me to study that in Australia and New Zealand. And I did a survey of all the anaesthetic departments of Australia and New Zealand. This was published back in, I think, 1998. And my estimate was that 1.8% of people who started anaesthetic training became addicted to opioids. Shortly after that was published, I was invited to a breakfast 
invited by Jack Warhoft and there were 12 other people sitting in the room. They were all past or present anaesthetic trainees who were addicted to opiates. So it wasn't 1.8% and, and their departments hadn't known about it. So I was pretty confident it was more like 1 in 25 of people who started anaesthetic training became addicted. It was, it was really from that I appreciated the, the difficulties of addiction. As I retired as an anaesthetist, I wanted something useful to do. And that's when North Richmond was getting bad press for EMSA starting to open. And I thought, well, I'd like to help if I could. And so I had a conversation with Nico and he invited me to sit in the injecting space itself to see what I could do to help the clients. And that was a really... It was a mind-blowing experience. I don't think I've ever, ever learnt so much in such a short time as getting to know the clients. What do you mean by that? My first impression was, I, was when I was behind the desk and the clients were coming and I think the injecting room had only been open for about three or four weeks. But I was absolutely blown away at the politeness and respectfulness of the clients towards the staff. I think that you know, the anxiety that people have about drug users wandering the streets in Richmond is so misplaced because these people were really grateful for the help and were incredibly polite to the staff. And it's not as though the staff had had a long time to train the clients to behave in a particular way. They were genuinely grateful people, happy to have advice. I was sort of shocked when Unico asked me, would I help people who were having difficulty injecting? And that sort of seemed counterintuitive. But you described the distress that people get when they're in withdrawal and having trouble injecting, and the distress it caused to the staff and the other clients when they couldn't inject, as an anaesthetist putting many needles in veins over a long period of time. I know not only the easy veins, but the, the deeper veins that people might need to use to find. And the clients were incredibly grateful for that. As soon as the long-acting injectable buprenorphine was available, that led the clients to ask me, saying, You've helped me inject, but I've had enough of injecting. I don't want to inject any more. Can I get onto this drug? Um, and so it was a way of, a really important way of establishing trust between the clients and a doctor and people who inject drugs do have such terrible trouble accessing healthcare for so many reasons. That relationship that you built by helping them inject was then later facilitated them reaching out to you saying that they wanted some assistance yeah, helping come they, off the heroin. They, they knew that I was a doctor who wasn't going to lecture them on not using heroin. It was a doctor who was prepared to help them manage their heroin use. It was a really good way of opening the door. And just to clarify, you weren't injecting people. You were kind of giving, offering advice to them on what might be... Yeah, this, I was, I was using my knowledge of, of anatomy uh, mm. and how to find a vein to show them how, or describe to them how to do it mm. and just guide them as they, as they were doing it. And it might be worth mentioning at this point that some of the less than ideal injecting practices that, that some people or had been using over many years that we witnessed in yeah. the injecting room. Well, the, the, many of the people who inject drugs have damaged the, the superficial veins that are normally easily to see just under the skin and so start injecting either into deeper veins in their neck or around their groin, uh, and particularly around the, the groin causes trouble because they tended to inject in the skin fold and get chronic infection there. So there's chronic infection around the vein and also beside the artery, and that sometimes causes serious trouble for them. To teach them ways of doing things cleaner and safer than they had been 
is better for everybody. You find yourself in the injecting room and it's, did that make you reflect on your the experience you'd had earlier where the registrar had died because that clearly had affected you at the time? The, the bigger impact of my hospital experience was to see how badly I and others working in hospitals deal with people who are addicted to opioids. The weight in emergency departments inevitably puts them into withdrawal and then they're easily identified as drug-seeking and they're likely to leave before they get treatment. So there are people who've got infected heart valves who've gone to hospital because they're sick, but they just can't wait for long enough. It's almost that their opiate substitution treatment needs to take place as first aid so that they can then access other health service or the pharmacotherapy, the opioid substitution, is usually delayed and that's a real barrier to treatment. One of my early experiences of taking blood was from a guy who turned up fairly early one morning and the staff indicated to me that he wanted blood taken to get tested for hepatitis. So I started chatting to him and he was dividing up his heroin using his Melbourne Cricket Club members card and his black visa, platinum visa card. And he was telling me he'd never had to steal to get money for his heroin. He's always had good jobs and 200,000 a year for the last 10 years in construction. You know, he'd been to a private school and 13 years of private school, all he ended up with was the drug addiction. But he'd had a pathology request slip with him for 18 months. He'd been to five different pathology centres and the person there would have two goes at taking blood and then say, well, I can't get blood from you, you'll have to go somewhere else. Um, so he just carried this pathology slip around wanting to get tested for hepatitis C. Um, and I was able to take blood from him by using one of the larger veins that probably only anaesthetists and radiologists know how to find. And it turned out that he was positive for hepatitis C and he got treated and we tested him again and he was cleared of hep C. Uh, but without access to the injecting room, he wasn't going to get blood taken. It just wouldn't happen. And we should say many people, in fact, die of hepatitis C in Australia more than who die from HIV now, either from liver failure or liver cancer. Yeah. And I think that's one of the messages for the community that aren't certain that the injecting room's a good thing. I mean, the Sydney injecting room was got public traction because people were worried about HIV and that it was going to get from the homosexual community through the drug injecting community and everyone was at risk from that. So having an injecting room to slow that down was a good thing. Well, hepatitis C is the same thing today, but it doesn't have the, the public traction that HIV AIDS did 20 years ago. Well, that kind of brings us round to the topic of the day, which is kind of opiate pharmacotherapy and how you have came to be prescribing it in the medically supervised injecting room. Had, had you had any experience with that before? Not really. And there were occasional patients in hospital who were on pharmacotherapy, but really very, very few. Um, so I had virtually no experience uh, until you encouraged me to start prescribing. What was your initial reaction when I suggested that maybe that would be something that you might want to consider? I'd have to confess my initial reaction was horror. Um, but then when I thought about it, I think I, my, my reactions were coloured by my uh, views of methadone and the difficulty of prescribing and needing to need for people to get new prescriptions because they'd missed a couple of days at the pharmacy. Whereas the injectable buprenorphine is really relatively such a safe preparation to give clients and it's easy to help them to manage their opioid use. So many of the clients that I first met had, they'd been on several methadone several times before. They'd been on 
buprenorphine sublingually daily dose, as many of them had had that. And they knew they couldn't cope with daily dosing. So they just wanted an injection to get some treatment into them to help get control of their heroin use. Do you remember the first, your initial experience with the pharmacotherapy? I can think of a couple of of early ones. Uh, And they they were quite different. Uh, There was one I recall, and he'd he'd been using heroin for years um, after having multiple trauma, as in a car accident, and had fractured his spine and both femurs and his pelvis. Um, And he'd been on long-term opioids and heroin use. And he had been attending the injecting room quite regularly and decided he wanted to go on the buprenorphine. And he started off with a dose and I think we were actually going to a meeting in town in the health department and I saw him out the front and he said, don't worry about me being here, Doc. I've just came came to get my phone charged. And instead of using heroin three or four times a day, he was then working in the backyard doing as a, growing veggies uh, in return for board and he was able to work in the garden and get back to doing his art. And I think I actually met him because I'd helped him inject when he was having difficulties. So it, well, there was another guy working in construction um, and he just used a little bit of heroin before he went to work every day and I thought a lot of people who worked into construction were drug tested but it seems that they didn't pick him. And he actually just had a, a one-weekly injection and then didn't use heroin for nearly three months and that was enough to, to stop him. And it's very hard to understand pharmacologically how it kept him clear for that time but... Still on treatment, he just comes back every so often mm-hmm. um, and has a small dose and is very grateful for our care. Maybe it's worth at this point mentioning a little bit about the different uh, medications that are available for pharmacotherapy. You've mentioned methadone, which is a it's an opioid which has been around this clinical use for probably about 50 years around the world. It's a, a long-acting opiate solution, which you, most people can take once a day. Some people find it wears off a little bit before that. But in the system we have in Victoria, you, you go to the chemist every day unless your doctor thinks that you're suitable that you go less frequently. And there's a cost of typically about $5 a day, that uh, like a pharmacy dispensing fee, which our clients have to, have to take. And uh, then maybe about 20 years ago, buprenorphine came onto the scene. Buprenorphine's another opioid, but it, it only partially stimulates receptors so it's uh, it's inherently a little bit safer and some people prefer it some people don't but again it, it more or less only lasts a day sometimes two days uh, and so this new medication that you're talking about tony that's a, a form that's relatively new it's only been available in australia for a couple of years and we were fairly early adopters of that is a, an injection kind of that forms like a waxy ball under the skin when it comes into contact with water and, uh, and is slowly absorbed by the body over a week or a month or longer, depending on the formulation. So this is a really the first time that kind of people have an option that if you take this injection, it's an opiate, you, you won't get withdrawal symptoms, and uh, you don't have to go to a chemist every day uh, to, to receive a dose. We should also add that depending on the dose, it also blocks the effects of heroin uh, because it binds quite tightly to the opiate receptors. So uh, if somebody was to use heroin, they may not feel anything, they might Depending on their views, they might be happy about that or they might feel like mm. they've wasted their money. And uh, there was some anxiety in the, in the drug and alcohol community when I proposed that we were going to offer this treatment at the injecting room that we might be putting some people in a situation where they won't be able to cope 
with the kind of the way that they feel because many of our, our patients have a, experienced significant trauma in their lives and um, and so it was really an experiment we weren't really sure how it was going to work at all but fairly quickly quickly became clear as you're as you're saying Tony that that many people really had very positive experiences and, and they were and they were saying that it was the the best treatment of their lives and so on and so forth yeah and and certainly um, I felt the anxiety amongst some clients and some of the staff too uh, as to were we possibly doing something terrible to these clients by depriving them of the ability to get the opioid effect. And I think that's a, a really valid concern, particularly when the, the reasons people start using opioids, they've had you know, abuse as a child, they're part of the stolen generation, They've had all sorts of life traumas. They're, they're treating their undertreated psychiatric illness. And you know, the warm hug of heroin is what's, what allows them to keep going. And there, there are certainly some people who find the effect of buprenorphine unpleasant and they do need some more positive opioid agonist. But the vast majority of clients are incredibly grateful I think, I think for two reasons. One, it takes them away from a daily medication and it saves them that daily decision of, will I take my pharmacotherapy today or will I use heroin today? Uh, but you, know, you think of the difficulty that people having, have giving up cigarettes, the daily decision to smoke or not smoke, the daily decision to use heroin or not use heroin, the daily decision to have pharmacotherapy. Well, having the injection that takes that decision away mm. has been really helpful for so many people. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why the monthly injection is particularly good because it gives people a bit longer to readjust their life. Um, mm. It's a bit like starting a new diet. You can do it for a week, but then you can lapse back into different food oh, habits. But if, if you yeah. do it for longer, uh, you can sustain it longer. Yeah. When someone has trauma and you called it the warm hug of heroin and you take that away... In terms of having the trauma, though, is obviously it won't go away. The trauma won't, will still be there. Do you kind of um, offer other services to help address that issue that is contributing to the drug dependency? Yes, certainly. We, there, there is counselling available and we refer off to other services. We have a psychiatrist uh, as part of our clinic mm -hmm. um, and he's very helpful dealing with those clients. And also some, sometimes the fact that they are without the opioid effect, it allows them the, the time and space to actually address what that trauma was mm -hmm. in a constructive way where they're not interrupting their ability to process it by keeping on using opioids. So there, there are some people who have that almost paradoxical response whereby being really clear-headed, they can work through something mm -hmm that they hadn't previously been able to work through. Mm. It might be worth talking about what that exactly looks like. I mean, maybe, Tony, you could walk us through what happens when somebody comes and says they, they want to stop using. What, you know, what, what does that look like in the, in the context of the clients well, in the injecting room? If I can just go back, back one step further, I think it's important to recognise it's a, a two-edged sword in that we need to make sure that we're making people who are going to continue to use heroin welcome in the injecting room. So we can't be preaching to people who don't want to hear us that you should go across to the clinic. But uh, what we do do is make the staff are very receptive to the clients who give an indication that they don't want to use heroin anymore mm -hmm. or that they do want help. The way the injecting room 
room works. There's a um, reception space, an injecting space, and an aftercare zone. And the aftercare zone is where the clients who, after they've used heroin, are able to sit around and engage with the staff and talk about the the things that they need help with, whether it's housing or food or clothing or treatment. And the treatment we offer, all they need to do is mention that to a member of staff and they'll be walked through into the consulting area. Whoever's available will talk to them then about their options for treatment um, and then the clinician simply needs to apply for a permit. Um, many of our clients already have permits at North Richmond Community Health Service having been to the general practitioners here before. We need to get a permit which can sometimes be done same day, and then as soon as the client's in withdrawal, they can start having the buprenorphine treatment. So it's it's a very fast service compared to somewhere where they need to make an appointment. How long does it take somebody to go into withdrawal typically? It varies enormously between the clients. Some people will not have significant withdrawal symptoms for 24 hours, and some will be really uncomfortable four to six hours after they've had a dose of heroin. Um, and that's one of the things we need to work with them. It used to be said they must abstain from heroin for 24 hours. Well, for many of our clients, that simply isn't going to happen. So it's a matter of timing their, their heroin use and their attendance for their first dose of buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. So it causes the least discomfort. So you apply for a permit, you tell them to come back when they're in withdrawal, and they come back either later that day or the next day, and, and then what happens? But as soon as they turn up in the consulting area, we check that they're in adequate withdrawal and administer a dose of really whatever preparation they'd like. And most of them want to go on an injection because most of the clients have had daily dosing before and uh, know that that doesn't work for them, mm -hmm. um, whether they choose to have a weekly injection or demand a monthly injection, uh, it's it's up to them and we'll just work with them. And so that's provided on, on site? They don't have to go anywhere else for that? That's No, it's all, it's all on site and without charge. And that's one of the real kickers for our clients who um, often don't have spare cash. Uh, so having to go, one, make an appointment, two, wait to be seen and three, pay money, or mitigate against them finding treatment anywhere else. I'm here with someone who's an EMSA client and is very kindly offered to tell us about his experience using long-acting injectable buprenorphine. Hello, my name's Peter. When I was 14, I started using heroin. I'm 65 this year. I've been on Buvidel over three years which has saved my life. I've now got a, a job, which is only one day or half a day a week with North Richmond Community Health, which has helped me greatly. The Bouvardel, I get the injection three and a half weeks. I find that if you go four weeks, it starts to run out real quick. I advise anyone that's on Bouvardel, don't miss your appointments or your injections because it does run out quickly. Over the last three years, I've got three guitars, an amplifier, I've got a large, big 55-inch TV, the speakers either side are five feet high. I'm getting my life back together. I'm getting possessions, which aren't that big of a deal to me, but creature comforts always come in handy. And if I hadn't been on this Bouvardel, I'd have nothing. I'd still be using the injecting room or in jail. And uh, North Richmond Community Health, especially Dr. Matt Penn, has helped me greatly. 
I see him weekly for just for my own state of mind and we have a chat but every three and a half weeks I get the Bouvidel shot. So it's changed your life a lot for the better. Do you have any goals for the future? Like I'm a professional artist. I've got a um, MA in fine arts and I'm a potter by trade and uh, we're looking into setting a pottery up in the future and also with people in the injecting room an art space for them where they can paint or uh, do some pottery or but this is going to take time to, to get up and running. Well you started when you were a teenager and now you're in your 60s and you've quit that's amazing well done. Thanks thanks I'm, I'm, I'm just starting to be proud of myself because it's it's taken time slowly slowly as it goes things will get better. So for anyone considering, uh, it's called long-acting injectable buprenorphine. The brand is called Buvador that you've taken. What would you um, have to say to someone considering taking that? I'd say to them, get it into you as quick as you can. And what about the transition from uh, taking heroin and uh, feeling those effects, the euphoria and whatnot, and then having that taken away? How did you manage that? I haven't felt the euphoria from heroin for 40 years. It was just a a lifestyle. And when I didn't have it, I got sick. When I had it, I wasn't sick. When I have the Bouvidel, I don't have to worry about heroin. I don't have to worry about anything except my next injection of Bouvidel. Well, that's a good point because when you are taking heroin just to get by, not to get high at that point. Is that right? People might not know that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I didn't get half the heroin at all. I haven't got half heroin since my 20s, I think. And the heroin I was using was very, very good grade of heroin. It wasn't street heroin. It just doesn't work after a while because the receptors in your brain get that used to it. You need more and more and more and more and more. And when you need more and more and more, you've got the chance of ODing or... or and it's been over three years, I've been straight, which is great. Doors are opening up for me, which I never thought would happen, but I'm working towards these things. I have known people to use on top of the Bouvidel that feel nothing, and that's the aim of it, and it works, and it's done wonders for me. It could do wonders for a lot of other people that have addiction problems, especially with heroin or opiates. Back in the studio with Dr. Tony and Dr. Nico. Another aspect of this medication, to, at least now, it can it's recommended to that you can initiate people with the injection. In, in the beginning, there was less experience with that, and the manufacturer was recommending that you stabilize on a daily dose of the sublingual buprenorphine first. Sublingual is the the form of buprenorphine that's been around in Australia for 20 years that you put under your tongue Mm -hmm. and you go to the chemist and get every day. So that that was our, uh, you know, there's the methadone that you drink and then the buprenorphine that you put under the tongue. They were the two medications that were available. It was considered easier to transfer somebody from one form of buprenorphine to the injection rather than from heroin directly into the injection. 
you mentioned that 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 some of our clients didn't want daily dosing. Does that mean that they they weren't keen on stabilizing on the sublingual buprenorphine first? And how did you handle that situation? Well, many of them just downright refused, and they'd say, "Doc, if I could take take daily dosing, I'd be on it." Um, so they were, they were very clear about it. Um, I discussed with them their options, and many decided that they'd much rather just have an injection. Recognising that one of the values of having dissolving a wafer under the tongue for a few days as, is that you have a better idea of how much heroin someone's using or how much buprenorphine they need to stay out of withdrawal. The beauty of being in the injecting room is that we see our clients come through quite often, or you know, many of them were coming in a few times a day, and we know how much heroin they were using. So it was very easy to know about how much buprenorphine they were going to need. So we tended to give a slightly conservative dose that we expected to meet their needs, uh, but always said that if it wasn't enough, come back and we could give them some more. Mm. Um, but as soon as they felt the drug effect was waning, they'd come back and get a top-up dose. So what you're saying then is really within the safety parameters, flexibility was really uh, the core of the, the way that the treatment was offered to our clients. Yeah. I remember sort of being taught about methadone and people doing drug testing and the clients had to abstain. And Well, I mean, if someone uses heroin on top of their methadone, surely that means you just give them more methadone, not that they should be punished or dropped off the methadone program because they were using. And I think there's a sort of a medical model of pharmacotherapy where the doctor tries to be in control of the client, um, whereas we have much more of a harm reduction approach to pharmacotherapy where we're providing the drug to help the client manage their heroin use. And if they want to stop completely, fine, we're happy to help support them do that. But if they want to have pharmacotherapy and are going to use heroin less than they were, then that's a much better outcome for the client and much safer for the client. We shouldn't be uh, offended or feel diminished or frustrated that the client hasn't stopped using heroin altogether. I mm -hmm. mean, how many people chew nicotine gum and smoke a cigarette too? Yeah. Uh, that's okay. Uh, less cigarettes is better. Um, less heroin is safer. And many of the clients develop a pattern of doing that and then gradually choose to stop using heroin. And that's in fact a, a principle of engaging with people who've had uh, traumatic life experiences, the kind of a trauma-informed care is increasingly been shown to be effective way of helping people like our clients receive various different forms of interventions. Uh, I can say that at that time you were the main opiate prescriber in our clinic. I personally aware of many clients who kind of really appreciated their kind of refreshing approach. Did you get much feedback from uh, our clients in that way, that the treatment that they were experiencing with you had been different to their experiences yeah, it, in the past? It was incredibly rewarding. And I had one just the other day thank me at the second consultation for being so willing to work with him uh, to manage his heroin use. And I think it was probably easier for me because as an anaesthetist with a knowledge of the pharmacology, particularly of buprenorphine, I knew what could be administered safely. I think so much of methadone prescribing has been tarnished by anxiety uh, for the prescriber that if the their client or patient comes to harm while they're on methadone, that the doctor's done something wrong. The practice of you know, needing to be 
re-prescribed or the dose reduced when people miss doses. I mean, when people stop using methadone for four days, that's probably because they've used a lot of heroin in that four days. It's not that they haven't had any methadone, it's they've used lots of heroin. It sort of became a, a punitive approach to prescribing methadone rather than dishing it out, withholding it. Uh, and I think as an anaesthetist, understanding the safety of buprenorphine relative to not having buprenorphine made it much easier for me to be flexible and to provide the clients what they wanted. And I think you've mentioned the, the hepatitis C treatment and the difficulty of our clients who have had trauma. The notion I've enjoyed describing the injecting room as, as, as a Trojan horse in getting health care to the clients uh, who inject drugs. And the, our clients have so much trouble getting health services elsewhere. The clients who we used to diagnose on the basis of their blood test you know, would have to go and see the gastroenterologist or the GP and have other tests and then have a prescription. Whereas with support from the team at St V's, we have on-site finger prick tests. So people come in to use heroin and if they haven't had a hepatitis C test recently, they can have a finger prick. By the time they're ready to go, they'll have a result which may be positive. And if it's positive, we'll send them away with tablets. They simply come in to inject heroin and they've had their hepatitis C diagnosed and treatment started on the same day. And for those that are homeless and can't look after the tablets, they get their hepatitis C treatment when they come in to inject heroin. So it's providing health care to people who just otherwise wouldn't get it. Mm -hmm. I think you described it in your own words as a, like a cameo at the end of your very successful, you know, happy career as an ethicist. You've done something completely different and that you never imagined that you would you would do and, and you found yourself being an opiate pharmacotherapy prescriber. How would you reflect on that experience now? I might tear up at this. I think it's probably been the most rewarding three years of my professional life. I got to do great stuff as an anaesthetist, uh, anaesthetics for heart transplants and lung transplants and neurosurgery and all sorts of things. But to meet and get to know this client group and have them share their stories has been just an incredible privilege. Yeah, I've, I've, I've often said to people, the, the male pale and stale at the golf course who just want to lock up all drug users, you know, getting to know this client group and be able to help them, but also to have the reward of them being so outwardly appreciative. You get much more, I've had much more thanks from this group than people I've anaesthetised for major surgery. Mm -hmm. um, they are much more grateful for such a small thing that doesn't take a great deal of time or effort. It's just a matter of being there. For our clients, that's such a rare thing to be able to access healthcare without stigma attached. Mm. Yeah, uh, and I think it's for me. It's been a real privilege. Mm. Why does it appear more effective for some people the LAIB treatment? I think many of our, our clients have got a shortened time horizon. You know, that um, rather than planning what they're going to be doing in five years' time, they're kind of thinking how they're going to get through the day. Mm. Um, but you know, part of that is thinking: when am I going to next have enough money to? get some heroin because that's been the pattern of kind of coping over many years, for example. And that you that often extends to over the next 24 hours, maybe over the next week, but you don't doesn't really think I'm going to book my dealer in three and a half weeks' time. 
and that just takes it away from now. You say, oh, I can't use, you can't use now. It's, I don't need to use now. I'll, you know, when I feel like it, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll, I'll deal with it then. And and then many people, they, they, it's far enough away that it's out of now. And then it wears off so gradually. Some people that don't even notice that it's worn off. And like you were saying before, people come back and maybe three months later they've started using heroin again. They, oh, I forgot to get that injection. And they come mm-hmm. back and they'll get the injection. So I think the capacity for it to provide a sustained effect over a long period of time really does help people take control over their own their own substance use. How do you project this new treatment to go over the next five or ten years? Do you think other people, similar clinics around the world, will open up and start delivering this kind of treatment? I think it, it's it's certainly it's the uh, so we've done some uh, research with our clients as to what they think about it, and we've gone done some analysis of how often they use the injecting room before and after starting treatment. And together with Tony, we've looked at that, and we've seen really there's been a dramatic reduction in the number of times people use the injecting room and a dramatic reduction in their self-reported heroin use. Um, and, uh, you know, it's by far the preferable treatment compared to treatments that they've had in the past. And it's the, it's the main thing, it's the main option that people ask from us when they, they want treatment. Often people will come in and say, you know, my mates had this buprenorphine injection and you know they say it's fantastic you know where can I get it kind of thing mm-hmm. you know all new treatments have a kind of new factor but uh, you know in my experience in providing this kind of treatment for, for 25 years now uh, it's the first time that you have so many people come and say really this has really made a big difference for me it's the first time in my life I've been able to do what I want to do and mm. so I, th- I think that it really is a game changer for treatment of heroin dependence. We get a lot of interest from people around the world who are wanting to look at our experience uh, with this medication. And this was perhaps the last group that people were t- thinking to target with this medication, but I think it's really a group who really like it because the kind of the alternative of going to the chemist every day, paying $5 every day and getting regular appointments with with the health services, that, that hasn't worked for them. And, and so this it is going to be used increasingly around the world with this population. And you're one of the first people to take it up. Yeah, I think we really have a, a unique experience. And, and I think, you know, if we have the time, we certainly we do get requests to share our experience. Tony, thank you very much for sharing your experience today. I think it really has been a privilege to work with you in the time that you've been here. And thank you very much for sharing your story today. Thank you. I'm, really, I'm happy to share the story. And I think and this is a great treatment for heroin users. But the, the challenge for the community now is to reduce the things that initiate heroin use, so reduce those traumas, you know, have proper psychiatric services so people who need psychiatric help don't need to go to heroin because they can't get psychiatric help to deal with the traumas, deal with the inadequate housing, deal with family stresses, uh, do those things more constructively and hopefully prevent so many more people from starting on heroin. What's your comment to listeners listening today when we've been um, discussing LAIB and some people might be considering, you know, perhaps they're the director of a medical clinic similar to yours, perhaps they're someone who uses. What would you have to say to the listeners? Look, I, I think, uh, as we've heard from Tony, um, this is both a, a medication which can be used in a way to help people gain control over their heroin use, which is both uh, really rewarding for 
the people using heroin and and rewarding for the prescriber, the, you know, the doctor, the nurse practitioner, because we definitely need more doctors and nurse practitioners to work in this field because there's really a shortage of of those and uh, and in Victoria in particular, most of the people prescribing pharmacotherapy are um, an uh, aging group who who are kind of have uh, hundreds of uh, clients, and as they retire, we're really going to struggle unless we can kind of share the work around. And it's such a it's such a nice treatment to use that I'd really encourage people to take that up. Thanks Dr. Nico and Dr. Tony for taking us through how they use long-acting injectable buprenorphine as they work with a client to manage substance use along with other components of trauma-informed care. Thank you also to Peter being generous with his time and sharing his experience with the oat treatment. If you want to find more information about the clinic, the website is nrch.com.au. As always, it's been lovely to be with you today. Thanks for listening and take care.